1: Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline, and in my wedding photos I look all blue and wibbly. Joining me is the woman who taught your cold English wife how to feel. It's Monica Heisey.
2: Hi. Hi.
1: Today it's Love Actually. I'm so excited. I can't believe it's taking this long to do it, but it's the 20 year anniversary this year. That's stressful. I know, because I feel like I had full tits and pubes when I saw this movie. <laughs> I guess I wasn't keeping an eye on that, but if I, th- if
3: I think back, probably
1: we Full tits and pubes?
3: Yeah, well, the tits were late,
1: actually. But, yeah, no, but my tits were late. Maybe, <laughs> maybe pubes. I was definitely like wearing a vest with bra straps and pretending it was a bra. I don't know if that movement came to Canada.
3: I was getting made fun of by my sisters for having me small boobs, and now I'm
1: blowing them all out of the water. I know, same You just same. gotta wait. Just, girls, just wait. <laughs> Which is what this po- the meaning of this podcast is all about. Just wait. Um, so you make rom-coms. I do. You actually have a rom-com show that's out right now called Smothered on I Sky. I do. It's been hailed as like the new era, the new generation. You're like the the Phoebe Waller bridge of people just kissing and not having any feelings about Catholicism at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take it. Um, And so, like, whenever there's a new queen of anything, there becomes this sort of instant uh, urge to sort of bastardize the past a little bit. And I know in interviews you've been getting a lot of like, so you hate Richard Curtis, surely, haven't you? It's
3: been a weird week for the press because they are really keen. Sometimes... With journalists, you can see them trying to formulate the headline in the question that they're asking, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have been like, "Don't you think Nora Ephron is out of date, or do you do you mm-hmm. think it's kind of cringe to watch some of these older rom coms looking back?" Mm-hmm. And I, it feels strange because those people are my foremothers and
1: forefathers, yeah. and they've <laughs> the Mount in, Rushmore of rom coms. They've
3: influenced my work so much; I wouldn't make those. The kinds of things that I do, if I wasn't really well versed in the work of Richard Curtis and Nora Ephron, um, so it feels a little strange, uh, you know, because you you want to say like, oh, sure, some of the some of the comments of about weight in Love Actually, for example, or there's some very strange stuff about a housekeeper in Heartburn that is mm-hmm. not great to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it makes sense to blanket condemn work from the past because it's. A reflection of the past.
1: Yeah, I I feel the same, and like obviously that's why I do this podcast because I feel like it has become very du rigueur to sort of um, chew through these things that are were created in a climate in the spirit of a political a politicality, I guess, um, and then put politics on top of them because like surely the it just feels very unintellectual.
3: I find it really strange and and quite yeah I agree with you quite a a, a not very critical way of looking at or experiencing a book or film. For example, Bridget Jones is getting so much flack. It was, I think it's yeah. the 20th anniversary of Bridget Jones as well. Um, oh, wow, really? Yeah. Uh, there was a recent anniversary maybe of the book, okay, but not the sure. film. And um, there was a big New York Times piece that was like, women deserve better than Bridget Jones. Bridget Jones was obsessed with men and her weight and everything else. And I, I feel like I don't understand how you would condemn a character mm. who accurately portrays the the neuroses and preoccupations of the time in which she was created Mm -hmm. as being... uh, Why would Helen Fielding be trying to make... You know, she's not trying to make a manual for how to be a smarter feminist woman. She's trying to reflect the neuroses and concerns of Mm -hmm. women of her time in that moment. And she does a really good job of it. So it's not like Bridget Jones invented feeling bad about your thighs. Mm -hmm. She lived in a culture steeped in fat phobia and promoting diet culture and was as worried as the average woman, maybe a little bit more for comic effect yeah. um, about her body as a result. But I think it's very strange to try to sort of put Bridget Jones on trial for the cultural sins of an entire decade.
1: Exactly. And it's also this thing that happens like so frequently, which is not giving women the right to create satire. Yeah. Which I I, I'm, I just fucking, it's, it annoys me so much. Like, one thing I think about a lot is with girls, which I think is having a huge cultural reappraisal now, they there was some kind of like interpretation of that that Lena Dunham's creation of Hannah Horvath was her being like, and this is me. And this is what I'm like, and surely this is what everybody else is like, and we all feel this way, don't we? When it actually was something closer to like a Larry David situation yeah, going on, and
3: particularly to say like, this is this is it, and I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's good. It's a, you know, she's a comedy character. Yes, yeah. yeah, I I I find it very strange. Um, that happened a little bit with my novel as well, um, with with reviewers just being a bit like, this character is pretty self-involved, isn't she? I was like, yeah, it's, it's a comedy book about how self-involved you become during a breakup. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole point of the book. <laughs>
1: Um, at one point, she says, "Like it's okay because nothing worse than this could ever happen." Yeah, which
3: is an is a mad thing to say. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you think at the very height, at the very zenith of your breakup insanity. Yeah,
1: that this is the worst thing that's ever happened, and to you con- anyone, <laughs> you, and to anyone, you confidently say it, and now nothing can ever hurt you because you've been the most hurt you possibly can.
3: Oh, and yeah. basically
1: implies that to a woman whose dad has just died. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a weird impulse both to. Um, try and critique these things through th- through the contemporary lens. It's like, if, if they knew better, they would have done better mm-hmm. in terms of representation. But I also don't think... Representation, I guess, of, like, certain mindsets or whatever, mm-hmm. or storylines. But I also don't think anyone has an obligation in their art to create a manual for how things should be. That's one way you can make art. Mm-hmm. But you are also allowed to make art that's representational or that's satirical or that's just silly. Or that's highly specific.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. To, like, a certain worldview or whatever. Um... Sorry, we'll get into the movie, but the last thing I want to say is like it, just because it's like annoying me so much, and also because it's the Love Actually anniversary, I have been noticing so many articles about like, can we still enjoy it? Should we? Should like should we relegate it to the to the backlist or something? Which obviously will never happen because people adore this movie, mm-hmm. but it just always strikes me that like when we try and like turn art into something that like can tell us how to vote or how to exist in a society or how it's even create a society. We're sort of purposefully going out of our way to do make art do a job it never wanted to do. Like what it's supposed to do is sort of like resonate with us and help us identify feelings and emotions and find language for those emotions or all these great things that art can do. But what it can't do is like sort of Tell you how to vote. Tell you how to think about the world.
3: I think it can do those things. It just depends what your uh, goals are as an artist. I think the like, I think when people say that art can't change the world, I think that's uh, a, a kind of giving art short shrift. And then when they mm. say that. Um, Art has to change the world. I think that's yeah. not fair either. I that's, think there's just it's a very capacious yeah thing. It, there's literally no limit. It's it's an expression of of human imagination, which is literally boundless. <laughs> um, so I think to be like there's only one way to do it is just is just so limiting and strange. And with I think this I have a real bee in my bonnet about this right now with rom coms because um, also with a lot of the press for the the show has been like oh, can this tired old, shitty old, crappy old genre be any good? Um, It's a pretty good show, but, like, what about rom-coms as a concept? And I think that's something that's been used for such a long time, to be like, oh, sure, this woman's good at what she does, but is what she does bad? (laughs) Like, they're just, like... (laughs) It's very wily, trying to find all these different ways to be like, okay, well, I guess guess this is objectively a well-done piece of something. Maybe the entire category of thing that it is is bad Yeah, um, which is pretty exhausting and I just don't think happens with like horror movies
1: not at all you know no. what I mean the, the, I feel like there's a lot of justified intense study about how horror sort of reflects the fears of a major society, yeah. But like, I think not enough study on how rom coms reflect the sort of like the everydayness of society. And I think that's what people when people go to rom coms, they mostly don't care that much about the kissing themselves. It's about the the heightened glitter of the everyday. Okay. You
3: know? I'm trying to rebrand the rom com because that the name has been dragged through the mud. Yeah. Uh, as the relationship comedy, because yeah. all the really good ones have our explorations of all of the different ways that people can hurt each other and help each other and fall in love with each other and uh, disappoint each other and whatever, you know, there's interesting and rich mother daughter dynamics and friend Mm. dynamics and colleague dynamics and um, all the really well done ones are really thoughtful explorations of, of human nature and the ways that people interact with each other in so many different configurations other than the core love relationship um and i i I don't think they get enough respect for that
1: and like behind every great rom-com and even some very average (laughs) rom-coms like i'm talking real b-tier straight to vhs stuff there's like often you know a huge like fancy concept that is like there to you know distract and amuse us that like underpinning that is some like huge quite difficult truth about being alive like we just did While You Were Sleeping which is a lovely movie and it's an insane concept Wild throughout mm-hmm. Um, but there's like uh, watching it I was like oh this is a movie about profound loneliness like this character is so unbelievably lonely in this big city that she's almost like like no one in her life can remember her name like she's sort of like thin in essence and then like it's about being seen and welcomed by a family it, it's like mm-hmm. it feels like such a universal and devastating truth in such a like a fluffy gorgeous movie.
3: I will say I'm pushing for lower concept rom-coms. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm I've had enough body swapping, time loop, you know, what I think like if you look at the really classic ones, it's just um Two people who care about each other and there's something in the way. Nora Ephron says that there's the Christian rom-com tradition and yeah. the Jewish rom-com tradition. Oh, go on. And the Christian one, um, it's boy meets girl and a, and a third party obstacle comes between them. Mm-hmm. And in the Jewish tradition, it's boy meets girl and the neuroses of one or both of them keep are the obstacle keeping them apart. Oh, that's so good. And I, I do love I do love it when they're in... And I actually think British rom-coms kind of hue that way a little bit as yeah. well. Like, love actually, if you look at it, is quite low concept. The concept is, it's Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's so smart because it's so... It's such a good way to bring everyone together. I mean, it's basically like the same thing with four weddings and a funeral. It's like, what is... A a time of year or an event that will bring everyone together Mm. when we need them. People who don't see each other all the time, but who are thrown together in this particular way.
1: That's so perfect. Mm. He's really good. I guess that brings us to the next bit of chat, which is like why, apart from it simply being low concept and full of like lovely performances... Why does love actually work as well as it does, and why is it sort of the behemoth, the the kind of like statue of liberty of like Christmas themed rom coms?
3: It's a really good question, and I I do I will say love actually is not my number one Richard Curtis film mm-hmm. by quite some nor mine. Miles. No, not at all. Um, but I think we watched it th- together the other day, and I think within the movie there are like two really good movies. Yeah, yeah, and then there's four or five. Other, maybe, of varying degrees of successful Mm storylines. But the core storylines are so emotionally resonant. I mean, and one of them is a big comedy storyline and one of them is a big drama storyline, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the, my, are we doing our reveal of the ranking? Okay.
1: So we're going to do, the way we're going to go through Love Actually today is we're going to rank all of the relationships all of the storylines and we're going to start from the bottom and we'll go all the way to the top. Okay. We actually, you know, I th- I thought at first that we might have separate uh lists, but we watched it the other day in my house and we really did the you know, we really crunched the numbers on this and tried mm-hmm. to come to a consensus between us. And yep. I think we have. There was some arguing. <laughs>
3: yeah, and and there was one storyline in particular that migrated around a lot more than I would have thought yeah. in my in my own ranking or my own esteem. I think also it is one of those I mean, I I never used to be a big um rereader of books, um, and movies are a little different. I re- I do re-watch a lot of movies, but this movie felt like I hadn't seen it in, in quite some time since Tits and Pubes maybe <laughs> first came on the scene. D and P, um, and it it was very it it hit different. There were di- different parts hit different. Like, yeah, as a, a woman of mid thirties experience,
1: and also as like as a I don't know person who like examines culture a lot for this podcast more parts of it revealed themselves to me as perhaps being meta-commentary or Mm. like because that's the thing is like there are lots of storylines in Love Actually that you could could easily go and uh, it would be fine but what's interesting about them is that they're kind of like these little you know B-side singles just Richard Curtis noodling around a concept and I think surprisingly amounts of his kind of concerns of uh, 2002 Mm. make it into the movie but yeah. Shall we start? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there are nine storylines in uh, Love Actually. Unless I'm missing... I, I keep feeling like I'm missing one, but let's see. Um, at number nine, we have ranked Martin Freeman and Joanna Page, The Naked Stand-Ins. Yes.
3: I was thinking about this on the way over here, and I actually think uh, maybe the issue, with if you look at the rankings is that all of the sex storylines are at the bottom. Because I don't think, with love and respect, that people are coming to a Richard Curtis film for sex. Mm. I think they're coming for uh, romance, flirting, uh, and a little sauciness. Yeah. You know, like, they were considered, in North America, those... British rom-coms are considered a little rude because they say like wanker and stuff things that we would probably not get away yeah, the like, with call a, each other a cock in a PG-13 you know like Hugh grant being like oh bugger bugger and yeah. we're all like oh my god that's fun swearing um,
1: yeah I remember that moment in Notting Hill where like the flatmate comes out and he's like in his underwear kind of thing I remember it feeling like strangely risque at the time yeah
3: I mean because it's very the costume department did a perfect job it's very saggy undies yeah that he's wearing those could a ball could come out at any moment
1: yeah it's a proper stuffed like (laughs) it's a stuffed hammock but I think yeah this storyline
3: with the stand-ins there's not enough to it and I think there, it seems to me like there's a sense of like it's titillating and kind of exciting. It's very carry on, isn't it? It's
1: very Barbara Windsor or something. That it's know. very. It
3: feels quite British.
1: Yeah, it's like hoo hoo boobs. Yeah, like, tits. Yeah, knockers. Like oh,
3: they're being quite. De- the whole thing is they're being quite demure, even yes. though they're nude and simulating sex.
1: Yes, and like many of these, like I think you know, uh, Richard Curtis has sort of. He famously lost Best Original Screenplay for Four Innings in a Funeral to Pulp Fiction. Right. And, you know, bears it no will, Ill, Ill will because he loves Pulp Fiction. And he's called Love Actually his Pulp Fiction, which is that all these interlinking storylines, some very small, some very large, some... That's a crazy thing to say. <laughs> but like, if you think about it, there aren't that many... Mo- I mean, after this movie, there was this huge wave of like... Uh, holiday event day sort of big cast movies that are all pretty much horrible and
3: I think that's why this movie gets a a bad rap I actually think Mm -hmm. that it's being tarred with the brush of its imitators
1: oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah You should teach a chorus. All, think... all these sentences you're saying, tired uh, with the brush of its imitation. Yeah, can you?
3: Tell I had no sleep last night. I'm really like no. Say, not use at a, big all. Word, use yeah. a big word. Use a big word. Yeah, I I think it's like it, he spawned all these copycat movies that were not as good that he didn't write.
1: Yeah, yeah. And everyone's
3: like, oh god, another big old holiday ensemble piece. And it's like, no, that was so such a good concept that that people stole it for like a decade.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's not his fault. And I can see why it became such a huge trend because it's like, okay, we can get three days with Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and now we, now Ashton Kutcher's in our movie. Yeah. Or like, you know. The poster has 500 famous people.
3: On exactly. It. Yeah.
1: The only one of those movies that I enjoy is um, He's Just Not That Into You. I think it's quite good. I hear it's good. Is, yeah. Does that take place on a holiday? No, it's just, a it's just a kind of a huge ensemble piece, right? Where many of the storylines could go, but all add up to something kind of pleasurable.
3: Yeah, famously, he, I've never seen that, but uh, the advice is—you've never seen. No, it. I was going to say, famously, that's <laughs> very good advice from that movie
1: slash, yeah.
3: slash dating book. Yeah. It's very good advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, slash dating book tie-in with Sex in the City. Yeah, it all it, goes back eventually. It's very—if he wanted to, he would, ladies, yes. <laughs> ladies. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, women's the game of the early '90s. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, 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 like I think the naked stand ins, it feels very much like a storyline that was a post-it note that like, you know, when you're in a production meeting or a production company with like a, when like a TV production company takes you out for lunch and they're like, what are your ideas? And the first three you've put all your heart and soul into. And you're like, it's a reflection of womanhood and the time and this and London. And they're like, yeah, no, next. And then you get to your like last sort of like yeah. fag packet idea at the end. And you're like, two, two stand-ins, they're nude, but they're shy. <laughs> yeah, they're like, do
3: you, do you have anything with a dog? And you're like, I could. I could. I could. And then this is the dog idea. Yeah. I, I do think also um, they're both really charming actors, mm-hmm. Martin Freeman and the woman from Gatlin's. Joanna and Page. Joanna yeah. Page. They're both really charming. And I think it just feels like a slightly under underworked storyline because mm-hmm. also she has the, I think, the worst clangor in the whole film, which is that she turns to him and says, all I want for Christmas is you. And they're about to sing that song. So we didn't need that sentiment expressed again, and she could have said something that a person would say there, like yeah, you know, like you know, Richard Curtis it up a bit, fumble the line. That's how people are. They they try to say something and then they go, <laughs> well, you know, what I would really enjoy, what I would love,
1: yeah, is is is
3: for you to come. We could go somewhere. You know what I mean? Like don't <laughs> don't say it. It It's just, it never comes out how you want it to in life.
1: Although, I mean, this is ranked bottom, so I have absolutely no attachment to the storyline whatsoever. And I do think it could go and the movie would be the same. Yeah, see, what that's very damning. That's very damning. However, I do think part of the charm, if there is any to the storyline, is that they are both kind of like odd nerds doing an ostensibly cool and racy job. And the idea that an odd little nerd would, would like... Pre-prepare saying this, yeah, that's it's quite believable to me. That's true.
3: I I do wonder who they're standing in for.
1: Like what? Like it goes on for weeks
3: of them just doing this. It's a long shoot, and also they are very normal-looking people. Mm -hmm. But then they're having sort of very porny-style sex in like a golden bedroom. So it's like, is it a porn movie, and they're the lighting stand-ins for porn, or is it a? A film... And can porn even afford lighting stand-ins, generally? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's... I just... It feels a little underdeveloped to
1: me. Yeah. I agree. Sorry to it. Moving on. At number eight, we have Laura Linney and Carl. You wanted this to be bottom. I really have a hard time with it.
3: It's bum-out, <laughs> first <incredibly> of all. It's
1: <laughs> incredibly bum-out.
3: It's super bum-out. It uh, there's, there's no comedy element to it at all. Mm-hmm um yeah so it's one of the more objectively dramatic parts of the movie but again any good rom-com and you see this in richard curtis's other work has that blend of drama and comedy Mm -hmm. very seamlessly moment to moment in the same scene and this is just bum out bum out bum out bum out bum out and i don't believe them as a couple together
1: they're the casting is so strange
3: Chemistry is uh, chemistry, and a mix
1: of realistically
3: well-observed comedy and drama Are the only things yeah. you need for a good rom-com And I don't think this is either
1: And I think as well as like for any good rom-com the, I, I come back to this example a lot on the podcast Just because I think it's a, a great example of uh, a really artful trope Which is that uh, in Sex in the City, Samantha doesn't have cancer She has cancer in a premiere so if you're mm. gonna like if you're gonna have a really like upsetting and real world issue, there has to be an intersection where the glamour and the and the fun has to rise to meet it at the same level. But instead we have Laura Linney, who is kind of like a like a dowdy office worker who works for Ron and Rickman. Yeah. Um uh, Are there,
3: do they ever say what they do in, in there? No no, no. no, no,
1: no, no. <laughs> Um, And she's sort of a nice, well-meaning, shy American who is in love with her co-worker, Carl. Job title unknown. Uh, But uh, her entire life is kind of at a standstill because she is uh, the guardian for her very disabled brother.
3: Wouldn't it be more interesting if she suddenly sparked up an actual sexual relationship with the like hot European guy in the office and was trying to keep a secret from him that he thought was an affair or that he yes. didn't understand where she was going. Maybe he thinks she's a total playboy and is, like, running off all the time because someone else is texting her. Yes. And we find out she's going to visit her brother in this care home.
1: Oh, my God. I hope we improve them all like this. <laughs> this sounds so good.
3: Because that it's the same thing of, like, conflict between an unlikely kind of sexy office mm-hmm. guy and the woman who's had a crush on Like, she can't believe her luck, right? There's that little scene where she she is very rom-com she like leaves him in the stairwell and goes to the nearby stairwell to sort of scream and freak out yeah and like imagine that vibe was the whole storyline and then the brother can still be there but also it does make the brother seem like this like big drain on her life and people who have family members that they have a duty of care towards don't all feel that way like it just feels like a really relentlessly negative portrayal of like taking care of a loved one
1: which as you say in the said a minute ago very well is that like you know art, art can change the world and art cannot change the world and also art can be a kind of a um, a, a joyful portrayal of of uh, living with sort of disabilities which actually Richard Curtis has done a lot yeah. with um who's that character who is the wheelchair user in Notting Hill mm-hmm. um and also the uh, hearing impaired brother in Four Weddings and a Funeral like he actually does incorporate this into his work fairly substantially um, but this is just a, it's a bluer note of like, yeah, some, and some families, it's like this. Some families, people are all alone with the with the duty of care and it does get in the way of their life. And I'm okay with that being represented. Yeah. But I, if it's going to be love, actually, I need a bit more sparkle. Like I need a spoonful of sugar to help that medicine go down.
3: Or just something, again, it feels like one of those storylines, it doesn't quite, because the ending is just, she, she never hangs out with Carl again. Yeah. They, they never, they never do it. And they, they don't. The Im- implication is they're not going to see each other again because she's botched it. Yeah. Even though they had an incredibly sensual office slow dance. British Christmas parties, to be fair, are godless. So <laughs> the behavior at the Christmas parties <laughs> is actually fairly tame from what I've seen working in pubs Yeah. during I mean, Christmas. <laughs> um, it's really something else. So maybe that's not a criticism. That's just my North American prudishness coming to the fore. I mean,
1: it is a Christmas party in an art gallery. Oh yeah, covered in Santa boobs. <laughs> covered in Santa boobs. Which, I don't know, I wasn't aware of the art scene at the time, but that feels like a very I think it's turn funny. of the century <laughs> art project. I think it's funny too, I, mean, I like it. funny. <laughs> But it's also while we're
3: on the um, the science, Rylane those... has a really similar thing. Actually, I never thought of that. But like, yeah. I wonder if that's a reference in Rylane.
1: Oh, I, I haven't seen the... that.
3: Oh, you haven't seen it? Not <gasps> yet. No. Oh, you must. Um, but the it opens at an art gallery that's got big pictures of bums, bums, and maybe balls.
1: Fun. Mm-hmm. You know what? Fun. And I think um, it's an interesting sort of segue into talking about uh, something we chatted about the other night, which is that like. The way the space is dressed in rom coms, I find mm. very interesting. Because like if you are going to have um, you know, a movie, a, a two-hour movie that is just about relationships and people talking, your eye needs to be satisfied. It can't be distracted by too much fashion, which is why all Richard Curtis and Nora Ephron characters are basically wearing jumpers all the time. Texture,
3: baby. Texture, Texture. not pattern. That's right.
1: Mm-hmm. Texture, not pattern, no message tease. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the and the way like a Richard Curtis house is is we noticed when we we're watching is like it's like a big white room filled with shelves and the shelves are filled with shit. Mm, yeah. And that how satisfying that is for your eye to like slowly dart around that. And like, and how detailed that work is for the production yes, designer. Yes. Yeah. Like um, I mean, everyone always said I, I've listened to a couple of uh, podcasts about sort of how to design wardrobes in. Mm in rom-coms and uh, how it is among the most difficult thing to design because if you just like order a bunch of clothes in from like a JCPenney's or whatever it won't look it it will just have that uncanny valley weirdness to it like it's why Carrie Bradshaw's wardrobe is so important to us and it's so important that like we can see the kimono hanging up there and that things get moved around and lived in quality like it's a very hard thing to fake
3: yes we had this conversation a lot when we were in pre-production for Smothered about wanting Sammy's wardrobe to feel like the wardrobe of a 26 year old woman living in London. So we were like, you know, what are her staples? Mm. You know, we had like a long conversation about Doc Martens. Right. And there was some discussion of like, well, her flatmate is in Doc Martens. Do we want them all in Doc Martens? And I was like, yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> there are 26 year old girls living in London. Um, and then like, while we're on the Laura Linney storyline, as much as I don't like it, it bums me out. Um, their, the way she is dressed, I think, is very accurate to who that woman is. I think Laura Linney plays a mouse too well. I want. <laughs> I. I don't
3: like. I want to shake her character. You just hate her. I do, ah, listen. I don't think it's fair to like just have an aversion to someone. But mm-hmm. if I did, it would
1: be to her. <laughs> but I'm working on that part of myself so no I don't. Do you know, actually I support that because I feel like generally when people have like an aversion to actors it's so obviously jealousy like when people mm. are like I just can't stand Anne Hathaway or Kira Knightley or Natalie Portman it's like yeah because they're stunning and talented and they seem sweet of course you hate them Yeah. but like when someone like hates a kind of a very specific character actress like Laura Linney I'm like you know what fine. She went to <laughs> Juilliard she doesn't need my support she she's does. doing amazing. She's doing great but there's like a way that she dresses that feels like a woman who moved, an American woman who moved to England because she did Jane Austen at university. Okay, this is actually really rude <laughs> to come for me like that. And like, we, we've talked about this woman on our Pride and Prejudice episodes sort of like, we call her Mr. Darcy, American cat lady. That's because really her, rough because her cat is called <laughs> Mr. Darcy. Oh you know? God, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of these pale roses and pinks, and this kind of very early noughties embroidered monsoon style. Monsoon you, you know, in, shop, in monsoon. a big way. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah, I do.
3: A cardigan with like a little sort of formal uh, scarf with like applique yes. on it.
1: Yes, like, yes, like a pale pink cardigan with a sequin little bow yeah. because it's a party. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And that, that hat is just, she wore that hat to a wedding, you know? Oh, the the wedding hat is not right. You're right. It's not right. Well, a big brown hat at a wedding. Very little in that wedding is right. I
3: guess she's like, oh, it's an English wedding. They wear hats to these. <laughs>
1: and it's like, not those, babe. Not that not, hat. Not those, honey. Not that kind of hat. Is there anything in the... Laura Linney and Carl story that you enjoy I like when Alan Rickman is giving
3: her advice oh yeah that is but nice. I basically would watch Alan Rickman open his post
1: <laughs> so R.I.P uh, I know I'm sorry that he died before you had a chance to have sex with him
3: I not even have sex just a a, a, a thoughtful 10 to 20 minute flirt that tows a very clear mm. uh, respectful line to his marriage mm. at a work party yeah, that, That's my dream, my actual dream.
1: I would, yeah. So a perfect situation with Alan Rickman would be, you know that um, Friends episode where Chandler is like in an ATM. Yes. With Yasmeen Bleeth. Yes. yes. It's like that. Mm-hmm. It's like playing a little game sitting on the floor of somewhere and then just parting ways. Me and Alan Rickman in the queue to see the Queen's Colton. Yes. <laughs> We're
3: stuck together for hours, but in quite a strange way. Playing a little game. Neither of
1: us really knows why we're there. <laughs> nice. That could replace, that storyline could replace this one and we'd all be happier. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Number seven, Colin Firth and his housekeeper, Aurelia. Oh, yeah. We're moving up the list. So clearly we like the story enough mm-hmm. to not put it at the bottom. I'm actually so surprised that this has ranked yeah. below the other thing
3: that is coming, I think. I think the one after this is Other Colin.
1: No, yes. But I have an argument about Other Colin. Okay. So.
3: Yeah. I'm, su- I'm surprised because this one has a more... more. I think the bottom half is sort of the slightly underdeveloped stories, I would have mm-hmm. thought. But then this one is a fully developed story. It has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. And finds his wife uh, sleeping with his brother. And then uh, goes <clears throat> off to the south of France. Yes. To write. Yes. Falls in love with his much younger uh, Portuguese housekeeper who does not speak English. They develop a bond deeper than words very quickly. He learns Portuguese and
1: proposes to her. In the space of about three weeks. That's right. Yes, because it's the run up to Christmas. Um, the best thing in the storyline is the uh, woman from the cleaning agency. <laughs>
3: oh, yeah. I love her. <laughs> She's just great. She's very funny. Those kinds of characters, those flyby characters that are like incredibly hilarious, but not written to be these ridiculous big comedy characters. Yes. Love them. As funny as a strange person in real life is.
1: Exactly. I would say that if um Richard Curtis, I think, has very few, like, flaws in his work, but one of them is that he tends to overload the basket with kooks. Does he? I think... Notting- Only in the friend group. Notting Hill has one too many kooks and it almost spoils the broth. Do we need the bookshop kook and the sister kook? oh i you know like I mean? and the roommate kook there's like too many too many big kooks but you then know? two of the kooks are put together at the
3: end so that makes sense why those are there
1: i just think we could lose that bookshop kook
3: <laughs> the the gay one yeah or dylan moran stealing the book
1: there's, you know i just think there's a few too many kooks
3: i'm unfortunately think notting hill is a borderline perfect
1: film yeah me too which is why the kooks unsettle me <laughs> But this,
3: yeah, this the housekeeper, like, arrangement woman is yeah. so funny. I, I think Colin Firth is not being able to play up what's funny about him. Because, mm. like, in Bridget Jones's Diary, he gets to lean into being slightly overly stuffy. Like, they play mm-hmm. the funny side of being the good guy. Yes. Where he's a little too formal. And he's a little, uh, when he tries to make a joke, my favorite thing in Bridget Jones's Diary is when Mr. Darcy makes jokes. Yes. He does a little smirk where he's proud of himself because he's not a fun enough guy that they come that naturally to him.
1: Yeah. But... Which is really sweet. I think it's so human and lovely. You're right. And when he's, um, my favourite bit in Bridge Jones is when they meet in the lobby of that hotel and he's talking, he's babbling about the rookeries or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Hugh Grant just goes, my, what a fascinating life you do lead." Yeah. <laughs> Or all right, Cleaver, you and me outside.
3: He's yeah. They they play the fun part of it, but in in this storyline, because he's been wronged mm-hmm. quite quite egregiously wronged. Yeah, um, he's it's really down in the dumps, and we don't get as much full on charming Colin Firth as we could.
1: That is true. Yes, and I just like I don't know. It just the whole storyline, it feels a little too twee.
3: Yeah, fun, fun referential moment when it's the woman who jumps in the water. Yeah, um, mm. you know, little that jumping in that pond will haunt Colin Firth for the rest of his life. Oh my god! Maybe it, in a good way. I wish there was something I had done in my twenties where everyone was like, "God, remember when you were so sexy that
1: time?" <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe haunt
1: is the wrong word, but it is following him around. I think about this a lot with Colin Firth, especially because we just did these Pride and Prejudice episodes of mm. that like, like. Colin Firth occupies the role of Mr. Darcy as though he were Bond. But the thing is, like, when you're Daniel Craig doing Bond, you've spent years of your life doing that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean, And you can talk pretty extensively about, like, yeah, and then that movie and then this movie and the gadgets and the women. And it's interesting. But, like, if you really, like, he probably has spent six months of his life playing Mr. Darcy and then another couple of months playing... um. I guess he did. Mark Darcy, two and, Bridget Jones movies, right? And the one very long, yeah. He's but he's, he's going to own that role for the rest of his life. Like, oh yeah, people he, can love Matthew McFadden as uh, in the 2005 version, but we all know it's an imitation.
3: I'm so glad that I saw Succession before I saw Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice yes. because it's crazy.
1: It's crazy. What a That's range. Tom. Sorry what to range. Sorry to
3: go so far off, but Walmscams <laughs> and Mr. Darcy, Conforth for the couldn't. <laughs> Although he's amazing in that crazy staircase show. Crazy staircase it's show? It's called The Staircase and it's absolutely nuts. Is Matthew McFadden in it? No, it's Colin Firth. Oh, right. Playing quite a strange, unusual, sort of like kind of comedy, kind of dark, dark, dark character. It's the oh. farthest I've ever seen him go from Mark Okay, Darcy. Well, good for him. Sorry, I'm wandering all no. over the place with this.
1: <laughs> no, okay. So the back to the... Storyline. Aurelia and Colin Firth. Um... The, the the sort of like we're we're connecting beyond words and like our subtitle, her subtitle thing is kind of in canny response to what he's saying, even though they don't understand each other. Mm. Sort of makes me a bit bleh. But I do. Hang on now. Is there anything I enjoy about it? <laughs> there okay. must be because it's ranked fairly mid. Here's my
3: pitch again to fix it.
1: <laughs> OK, great.
3: <laughs> I think it should have been a story about a man going away to write his book, falling in love with his housekeeper. They're not speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. He basically has a full love affair with with her in his head Uh because he's so heartbroken. His long-term girlfriend was just banging his wife. Yeah, And then maybe she says something kind to him at the end that allows him to go home and start over. But there's no proposal.
2: There's no
3: learning uh, Portuguese and English for each other. And there's no real actual like this one would be kind of a about the love you can make up in your head oh that's way better
1: right and also it would be it would be one of the ones that's slightly lower down in the mix but more charming because there isn't as much movement yes this is the thing i think where love actually falls down a lot is that like and i only mean it from a a story structure point of view is that it it sort of jumbles how much time it's giving each storyline like i think for example if the Maybe if the naked stand-ins were given, maybe not, maybe given more, it would be. It would mean more. Mm. I'm not sure. But it just seems like Colin Firth's storyline is given acres of mileage. Yes. When it doesn't feel like there's a lot to say because it just, it kind of clangs and it feels a bit too saccharine. But I think if it was a, a smaller storyline, and you're right, if him just sort of like fantasizing about her and sort of being kind of doe-eyed about her and like being awkward. mm mm-hmm. It would be more charming, maybe.
3: Yeah, or, like, realizing that she had a crush on him. You know, just something... Yes. Something about... Just smaller. It feels like his heartbreak is never... Is underexplored, right? Like, yeah. Like, the opening thing is, like, he comes home and hears his wife... Wife, I think. W- wife yeah. Uh, saying something incredibly... First of all, she calls him a loser and sends him out to a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> and then he comes home early to check on her. And she says, I'm naked big boy and i want you at least twice before jamie gets back which is so so like um over the top rude and gross thing to hear your wife saying about you about your brother um and i think the the storyline misses a beat where he's actually having a tough time and i know he's english but they they do still have the feelings. They put them somewhere weird,
1: but they still have yeah, them. They put them into their They put them book. into the
3: housekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think would be interesting to kind of lean into that, how delusional, I'm obsessed with how delusional you are when you're heartbroken, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. You fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> this is so um, this podcast cocky is of us. This fixes it. This is so
3: cocky of us. Obviously, the movie is wonderful, and there are so many considerations that, Go into.
1: But there's also something, I mean, not to be like, "Mm, it's problematic or whatever, but there's something about like, when I found out my housekeeper was thin, I realized she was a person.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of strange, I mean, people have already gone into this. We don't really need to, but there's a lot of very strange, very 2002 weight stuff.
1: Yes, at the end of the storyline, when he goes to Portugal at Christmas to find her, and. She's got a comedy sister. She's got a comedy fat sister which is horrible mm-hmm. um, and very unkind. Um, but also, it makes Portugal look like somewhere that's like in the Soviet Union in the late 80s. Yeah, they're all
3: wearing shawls. They're all wearing
1: shawls. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all talking
3: like, finally, Aurelia will escape. And yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> She'll
1: escape the communist regime here in Portugal. <laughs> yeah, to Britain
3: in 2002, which was, uh, was,
1: was it thriving over here? It wasn't thriving. Hmm. I don't know. It was still Blair, I guess. Mm. I don't know. It was Hugh Grant. <laughs> it was Hugh Grant who we'll get to. Next on our list is, um, oh, number six, Colin in America with January Jones, Alicia Cuthbert and eventually uh Denise Richards. I can't believe that that's so high up. I know. I, I really do think this is a victory for me because I did keep... You wanted to put a bottom and I kept arguing it up. Yeah. And um, you can be very rigid and inflexible on things, <laughs> but you really... I, I did win you round and I felt so proud for having won you round.
3: Yeah, I was won over it because I'm, I'm softening.
1: <laughs> You're old Because I'm age. becoming a, a softer person. Um. So people hate this story and I get it because it's it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> bad time to take a sip
3: of water.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's dumb. Because there's no, you know, it's one of the smaller ones. There's no real story. It's just like, man is fed up of like icy English women Mm -hmm. decides he's going to go to America where English people are valued for the charming uh, gentlemen that they are. And... And then he does it. Yeah, <laughs> like there's nothing in the way. There's no p- moment where it's like I have to like raise money to get my flight to Milwaukee for some reason. <laughs> it's just so funny that it's Milwaukee. Yeah, and no one has a Milwaukee voice, which they could really have leaned into, because um, I think it is the funniest American accent. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and so there's no, there's nothing in the way of it. He just goes no conflict at all, but I think that's fun. I think it's so fun, and I also think that it's like an interesting, like meta wink of Richard Curtis, Mm -hmm. who has like blown up in America. He's been working for a thousand years at this point. He's done Blackadder, he's done all the stuff with Ron Atkinson. Like you know, he's a he's already a big deal, but nobody in America would have known who he was. And then Four Weddings breaks in America, and he then he makes Notting Hill or whatever like he becomes a huge sensation yeah. by selling this version of the buffooning British man he's responsible to for a lot of my problems yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, for a lot of North American women's problems I yeah. wager Yeah, and I think that's so funny that he's like he's discovered that oh we can put any old toad in front of these American women and just make them stutter a lot any and they'll toad- go for it put some respect on Hugh Mungo Grant's name <laughs>
3: That man is wearing a button down at a level that should be studied by scientists. But I, I do, I do think that is a, a very astute observation from you, and and funny and wry thing from um, Richard Curtis to do, to be like, yeah, some any old any old random,
1: <laughs> any old rando can and just go over and say words, Colin, as well, sweet, slightly nerdy name, which is kind of funny if you think about, like. If you were just to see, I think, a young Colin Firth on the street or like meet him at a party, then that's kind of his thing is that like he's not charming at first, but he grows on you. That's oh. the whole point of Mr. Darcy. The way that he was be able, he was sold to the world as like a huge sex symbol and his name is Colin and he's just this quiet, gawky guy but has a certain something about him. And then to name your rando British hero Colin is yeah. really funny. <laughs> it is very funny. Yeah, I think it's
3: I think it also uh, is very energetic, right? It's like the opposite of the Laura Linney storyline, which is all drama and all conflict and no moments of lightness. And maybe that's why these two parts exist. It's like rather than have
1: that light and dark
3: in each storyline, there's like a dark storyline there. And this is all light.
1: And maybe that's why it works, because all successful Christmas movies are made to be had on in the background. (laughs) of like oh having friends over kind of Mm. thing and they're they're meant to be you're supposed to sort of glaze in and out and most of the storylines in love actually when taken apart are completely imperfect and most of the time i'm like oh it's this bit i don't really like this bit that much but i'm watching it and now suddenly i'm feeling things Mm. it's like it's, it's about the cumulative effect of love actually rather than the individual effect
3: yeah i think it really contributes and maybe this is how we got it Farther up in the ranking, it really contributes to the mood. Yes, of the movie, which is like it's jolly. There's snow, mm-hmm. right? By setting it in Milwaukee in December, you get a lot of snow, right? That's fun. Um, some stunt casting with those
1: hottie American hotties, right? And and the way they're like just playing ball as well, and it's like such crazy porn dialogue porn and crazy dialogue. porn acting. Yeah,
3: that maybe that's what Martin Freeman's doing the stand-in for is the Col- the, <laughs> yeah, the, story. the Colin story.
1: Colin story. Yeah, so that, I find that weirdly even though it's it's just the same thing as the stand-in storyline of being like, "Oh, sexy naughty runchy kind of thing, it's I find it way more pleasurable as a storyline.
3: Yeah, cuz it's not as um it's based in an emotional reality, right? This yeah. guy is like, "I'm going to I've I feel unfulfilled and overlooked here and I'm going to go see if my dreams can come true yeah. sex, sexually." And then they do. <laughs>
1: It's an American tale, but it's <laughs> not with mice. Um, but and it's funny as well, because it's like every person he knows or his best friend is just like, this is an insane idea. No one's going to appreciate you a complete two out of 10 human being <laughs> just because you can say the word bottle. Yeah. And they're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> just like everyone was wrong about Richard Curtis because he remains like the living king of the rom-com. Yeah. Because he sold this vision of British men into a global audience. Undisputed King, yeah. Undisputed King! (laughs) Yeah. You met him!
3: I did. How was that? He was incredibly nice. He was so nice and polite and, um, like, funny, but not in... Sometimes I feel like show-busy people can be really funny, but in a sort of, like, practiced way where they're, like, so used to everyone, like, falling over themselves to laugh at their stuff. But he was just, like, self-deprecating, charming, professional. Like, couldn't have... We were doing, like, a promotional exercise for Sky Uh for, um are our, our rom-coms that are both coming out on Sky right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very strange for me to do that with someone whose body of work could be like my specialist subject on Mastermind. <laughs> but I felt very comfortable. He Did you keep re- it together? Yeah, mostly. Oh, I, um, I, I
1: I have complete faith in your ability to keep it together with someone like that. Really? Yeah.
3: I didn't. I was... I, I will say in, in sort of...
1: Demure Canadianness, In classic
3: rom-com fashion, I realized after it was over that my shirt... Had split a seam oh, no. down the side, <laughs> so I'm curious to see if that appears, appears up in the video. On the video anywhere. Um, just my bra, just my bra sticking out while I speak to my hero, he would have
1: appreciated that not just uh, your boobs, but also <laughs> which are wonderful. Uh, <laughs> But just the, the little gawky moment. It's very, yeah, it was you very know? like ooh, the
3: music. Like, boom, dun, dun,
1: dun. And then you spilled your coffee <laughs> all over him. Yeah. And then the dog, you were walking round around his legs and then you were wound together. <laughs> he did pretend to put a
3: wedding ring on my finger. We were, we were making up a rom-com right. together. for the, We were pulling sort of like elements of a rom-com out of jars and then had right. to come up with a rom-com together. And at the end, when they got together, inevitably he pretended to put a wedding ring on my finger. And I was like, just don't um, <laughs> blush visibly oh you know what i mean like it's not like it was romantic it was just like i can't believe i'm a- acting at the end of a rom-com with like the person who invented them in my oh mind oh my god i can't wait to see this video maybe it's never coming out
1: <laughs> maybe it's, it's maybe there's too
3: much brawl in last it. <laughs> footage
1: all right let's move on past colin i feel like i've made my point i've vindicated colin he's at number six number five we have Kira knightley andrew lincoln and chiwetel Ejiofor's storyline This one
3: is controversial, I think, in the world of Mm -hmm. Love Actually fandom. Yes. For a few reasons. Mm. Keira Knightley is like 17. So that's
1: part of it. She's like six months older than the child playing drums. That's
3: Oh, God, that's (laughs) right. So she's she's very young, marrying a full adult. Yeah. Um, And the cue cards have become quite iconic and parodied a million times. And again, Mm -hmm. I think the scene gets in trouble for being corny because of the number of Pastiche and parodies that it has
1: inspired, yes. Which once again is not the man's fault. It's kind of impossible to look at that scene now and separate it from what culture has done with that scene. Like it's really hard to try and imagine or remember what it felt like to watch it for the first time.
3: Yeah, and and those parodies continue into now. Like thinking about that scene being twenty years old, Mm. and this is again one of those things where I I get defensive about romantic comedy being maligned because. When you think about the classic scenes from movies mm. that like have endured forever, it's like the dancing in Pulp Fiction and Rocky running up the stairs. And it's also John Cusack holding the boombox. And it's also yeah. these cue cards. And it's also Harry and Sally walking through Central Park. Mm. Those are iconic scenes yes. that have lasted for decades in our cultural
1: consciousness.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's not nothing.
1: <laughs> that's not nothing. And it's also, it's so important I'm really glad you're saying this because yes, the cue the card scene, cringy stalker vibes, I know people are like have, have like opinions about it. But if we think about it purely in the terms of you're right, romantic comedies deserve to be in the, you know, talked about the way all great cinema is talked about. Talked about the way Rocky is talked about, or Rocky horror, or um fucking Pulp Fiction, exactly. And the thing about having a rom-com is that rom-coms are about emotions. Emotions are communicated through conversation. So... Like, inevitably with rom-coms, you have a lot of visuals of characters standing around. Yeah. Hopefully in lovely settings, but often not. Um, And so you really have to work that much harder to make huge visual moments, because cinema is a visual medium, really stand out and pop and be memorable. And so those cue cards are really important in, like, the visual identity of the film, lasting a long time. You're so right.
3: But it's also not unusual in the history of, like... Maybe this is a big stretch. In the history of, like... uh, theater and film mm. to make a dr- a more dramatic version of what's real. You know, like Macbeth is a play about regret, being haunted by regret about your actions. Mm-hmm. And that is, they, they use ghosts. They use actual mm-hmm. ghosts. But it's, you don't have to, like, nobody would think that that's real. Everyone knows that the play is about mm. that intense feeling of regret. The ghost is, like a, a, like you say, like a visual way to represent regret. Mm-hmm. And then we get these beautiful speeches about what it means to have done something awful and mm-hmm. have to live with the consequences. Um, and I think in romantic comedies, a lot of those big gestures are sub- are sort of like literalizations of what it feels like. You know, yeah, to be to be intense. Like this is the thing I'm. I'm obsessed with the big speech. I actually think in real life, by the time you're doing a speech, you're dead.
1: You've the already speech, lost you're, yeah. when
3: you're doing the speech. That's the eulogy that you're giving for the relationship. But the reason that we that we love the speech, I think, in romantic comedies, is because it's it it takes. Um, Years of a relationship or months of a relationship and condenses it into one kind of paragraph, right? Mm-hmm. All the things that they say in the speech are things that ideally in a good relationship are being said to you or communicated to you mm. verbally or non-verbally during your relationship. You know, someone being like, I love you and I'm going to be there for you. Or like, you know, the one Harry met Sally's speech, he notices everything about her. What yeah. he's saying is, I've been, I've been looking at you and understanding you mm. and I know you and what I know I love. And that you can say that in a speech or you can say it over the course of a relationship, but you can't show the whole relationship in the movie. Mm. So we have the speech.
1: Very nice. Thank you. Very nice. I'm really on my high horse today. Can you You're tell? You're really on one today. I can't believe you've had no sleep because you are like absolutely galaxy braining this podcast. Can you tell I've been doing um, press about romantic <laughs> comedies for the last week and a half? Just
3: like fighting off people being like, "Do you think Nora Ephron's out of date?" I'm like, "No!" <laughs> My eyes go fully black. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. So but, yeah, okay, Keira Knightley. Um, oh, the cue cards.
1: Yeah, I want to start though from the beginning of that storyline because I that wedding mm. has I've I should have so many questions about it. Mm. What was strange watching it this time around, because I don't think I've watched Love Actually fully for about five or six years before we watched it the other night at my house, um, that that wedding dress, which has always haunted me as being such a fucking strange choice, has weirdly come back around fashion wise.
3: Yeah, I also, I, as a child, took it really personally when a wedding dress in a movie was ugly. Mm, yeah. Because it's supposed to be such an exciting moment. Yes. And you can't really project onto that kind of a wedding if you if you're like, I wouldn't wear a fluffy little cardigan, but now I'm like, I would. And the sort of like um
1: you would have looked great in that at your wedding. I think so. The thrown it over your dress. This sort of like the feathery kind of collar mm-hmm. when she's walking down the aisle and it's sort of this very strange thick material. And I guess it's a lot to do with the fact that the brief for the costume designer would have been Winter wedding, right? And because it's the, at the beginning of the movie, we need to really communicate that we're in a Christmas movie, but there's mm-hmm. also a wedding happening. So you don't realize that most wedding dresses you've seen are designed for hot weather, yeah. And so we don't really know what, what to look for when we're looking for a winter wedding dress, yeah. So on reflection, I think that wedding dress is perfect. Yeah, nailed it,
3: nailed it. The costume design is great. Is great in this movie. It's like, as you say, like not distracting. Feels yeah. real. Feels well observed for the characters. A lot of great turtlenecks, which is important. Mm-hmm um sorry roll necks yeah um the my thing with the wedding scene is that like literally half of the guests are members of this band that the friend is (laughs) um the friend has put together a choir and a band to serenade them on their way out Mm -hmm. and it is they all start popping up in the in the wedding but it's a it's a very small and intimate wedding and like Half of the guests have been sitting next to, like, a trombonist mm-hmm. for the full ceremony.
1: I do love it, though. I lo- like, well, again,
3: lovely big gesture.
1: Lovely big gesture. And
3: actually, knowing that, I think that sets up the cue cards a bit more because we understand yeah. that this is a slightly flamboyant, gestural person.
1: Yeah, and he's, he, I know he owns that gallery, but he is an artist. Yeah. Like, because uh, when they're in the apartment, in you the see studio. canvases and things. Yeah. And, you know, uh, but thats I think the only thing that's actually wrong with this storyline, and it, it's not the cue cards, it's that we don't know anything about Andrew Lincoln's character or any of those characters. They're completely blank to us.
3: Yeah, like we have no reason to believe that he loves her for any reason other than that she's very beautiful. Yeah. You know, like, the yeah, all it would have taken was sort of like one one little one extra scene comment offhand comment either to the husband or to her about like to show us again Uh, someone a friend of mine that I write with sometimes said to me once that flirting uh, writing flirting is just showing someone that you're noticing them yeah showing showing someone that you've been paying special
1: attention what's that line it's a it's a line from a poem I can't remember what it is though it's like everything in the world wants to be listened to you know Oh.
3: (laughs) oh god um and yeah, to to show us that he's been noticing her, which is I like, guess what the the video that he's taken, mm-hmm. what like they're all of me um is doing is or is that's what that's there for. But it, it, it just does feel a bit like he's obsessed with how she looks.
1: Yes. You know, which like, why wouldn't you be? It's Kira Knightley yeah she's, she's eighteen years old. Yeah.
3: But it would have been nice if he had maybe even if he'd just caught her on camera doing something sweet, if like he was catching not just the moments where she's looking gorgeous, but little moments like where her, she's her like fixing with the flower a flower or dress. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> Get Children. a kid in there. <laughs>
1: Save the cat. Children and animals. You know, <laughs> yeah. What I mean? Get them in. And like we don't we don't really understand the relationship that she has with her husband and his friend either. It's yeah. just like for for having so many scenes, it feels so thin.
3: It's a little underdeveloped, like the Colin Firth one, I think, in terms yeah. of the um, emotional backstory. Because yeah. again, with with the Colin Firth one too, it's like, how close is he with his brother? How um, was he, were he and his wife have, having problems or has he been totally blindsided? Like, yeah. there are questions that that undercut a little bit the the more romantic parts of the story. Yeah.
1: I wonder, I would just be, I, this is his directorial debut, which occurred as is everything it? else he had written before this, um... So I, I wonder, just like in the editing of the whole thing, was there more material that just got left on the floor? I bet there was so much. Yeah,
3: just because it's, it's. I can't believe how much they cram in.
1: I know there were whole There were at least two whole storylines that were completely abandoned. We see nothing of. Really? Yeah, I can't. I remember reading what they were, and they felt completely bizarre to me. And wow. Not what I would have expected.
3: Things change so much. I mean, this is such a boring. Over overly made observation but things change so much in the edit like you almost make a total right re- yeah. rewrite the whole thing in the edit
1: I remember someone at working title saying that like Bridget Jones was the movie that taught them that anything could be saved in the edit because it was a complete mess in the first cut
3: I heard that too and I can't believe that that's nice. true because every single scene and frame of that movie feels so intentional but actually I recently watched um, I'm on a I'm on a health kick right now, and okay. it's led to some boring nights. Um, and I recently watched deleted scenes from Bridget Jones's Diary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. She okay. Was, okay.
3: She was at home on the Peloton watching deleted scenes from Bridget Jones's Diary, and that's actually fine. <laughs> that is fine. It's actually fine. valid. Um, and the scenes that, that it showed did show, like, a slightly different movie. There's, like, very domestic scenes with Daniel Cleaver where they are
1: yeah. watching
3: rugby together in oh, his Oh, yeah, that's flat. a big thing in the book, yeah. Um, and it it really de-glamorizes. Like, I can see why they cut them. And it would have been a really different movie if they'd kept those in. They, they really played yeah. around with, it seems to me from the deleted scenes that I've seen, they really played around with uh, the balance between... Like they made kind of Hugh Grant and Colin Firth into those archetypes in mm. a really clear way. Mm. And that is the whole thing of the movie. And I think maybe there was a version of it that didn't have as much of a difference between those two guys.
1: Yeah. God, I really want to go back to Rita Jones because we've done episodes on the books, but not on the film. Oh. And like I watched it again recently with Dolly and I realized how much about class that movie is.
3: Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that yeah. Bridget was um, very posh or like sort of posh until I moved here not even but i think it's more like the the family's like posh
1: aspiring? Yeah, i would say they're like upper middle class, but then Hugh Grant or sorry, Daniel Cleaver and, and M- Hugh Grant Mark too. Darcy Yeah. are are like they're fo- both so firmly Oxford, they're so firmly upper crust and a class above her. Yeah. And it being this thing of like well, of course a guy like that never ends up marrying a girl like you kind of thing. Mm. There is a very subtle british class differences thing going on that makes it so much more interesting.
3: Yeah. It's. I think it's
1: such a good. It's exquisite.
3: Yeah, and the book is so good, and it's different, and they're both so good, on their own terms.
1: Yeah, and it feels like they do very different jobs. Yeah, even though they follow the same storyline.
3: I hadn't read the book until recently, and then I read it, and the, the whole Tom got a facelift or a nose job yes. storyline.
1: <laughs> I do think people are always. About fucking going on about like oh should we change the language in Roldal? The only form of literary censorship that I support is getting rid of the weight references. Not just the weight references, but the the nine stone twos.
3: Oh, the actual specific weight. Actual
1: specifics. That
3: was easier to read as a teen because I I um or actually easier to stomach because we did we don't have stone like stone is yeah such you a wouldn't funny, have an idea of how much that is yeah and then yeah. when I did find out I was like ruh, ruh.
1: right <laughs> she's small this is a small she's woman. a teeny tiny lady yeah. um I just think. You know, we could do two pounds heavier, three pounds heavier, kind of thing, as yeah, opposed to pit, pinning it to nine stone, which is a very, very lightweight. That's really smart
3: because those feelings are what I think. What Bridget Jones tapped into is that those feelings are universal, whether you're yeah three stone, <laughs> like yeah. forty pounds, but like whatever weight you are, you can feel strange about your weight. Exactly and so to get rid of. Yeah, that's, that's not smart.
1: what I'm in. I have a problem with. I think it's the 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 specific of the numbers itself because like every like I feel like I have a pretty healthy. Uh, body image and every time I step on a sales which is probably twice a year mm. when I'm at like a gym that has one I'm mm-hmm. like oh that's this much more than Bridget Jones is the first thing I think about really like, yeah the first thing god I know yikes yikes so is there anything else we want to say about Kira Knightley's storyline I think a vindication for the cue card scene
3: mm-hmm. I think it's a really like interesting. It's hard to come up with like an interesting, slightly strange and dramatic and as you say visually interesting. Mm. You know, like it's so mad bringing the speakers and saying it's Carol Singers and mm-hmm. very strange. Whole yeah. thing very strange. But also really impactful obviously. So vindication for that and then but I will say some of the lines on it.
1: Yeah, what's actually written on the cue cards, I feel like mm. could have used another pass
3: when he says because at christmas you can tell the truth says who <laughs> it's like i've just never heard anyone talk about i guess christmas like a drunk truth. a drunk uncle feels that way <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> at christmas you can tell the truth about what's going on with kids today <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: i also I also want to uh, express vindication for another much despised and very iconic scene in this, which is of course the revealing of the tape when she barges round with pie and oh yes, and she look people hate when she <laughs> looks at the video and she goes oh. I look quite pretty. I think that's lovely. I think that's lovely. People fucking hate that. You say this because you probably just got back like 5,000 wedding
3: photos where you were just like going through them being like, and that's nice, and that's and nice, that's and nice." I look quite nice there as well. <laughs>
1: But like I I think something that we've like been keep referring to on this podcast the last few episodes because we've been covering the Pride and Prejudice is uh, how much hate there was for Keira Knightley at the beginning of her career, which I think has subsided now. Um, but it always there, does. Yeah, it does. Event, you have to wait it way. out. You, gotta, you just got to be strong enough to wait it out. And I'm glad that she did because I think she's fabulous. Um, but there was so much hate for her. And people said that, you know, she couldn't act or whatever. I just think she had a very specific kind of charm that, like, worked on some people and didn't work on others. And that's what movies being a movie star is all about. But this, her saying, I look quite pretty, mm. was a real thing for people. And the idea that someone couldn't enjoy how they looked on their wedding day, I think, really spoke to how where we were in the culture. <laughs>
3: yeah, I think that's one of those, like, beautiful sort of well-observed Richard Curtis lines where yeah. like, I do really feel like he understands women as well as men. I agree. Um And I think that's such a, as you say, it's, it's sure. It's not necessarily the most like immediately um, correct thing to mm-hmm. say on seeing a video. But That's what's charming about it. Yeah. Is that you're so excited to see yourself on a day where your hair and makeup was professionally done, where you've been thinking about how you might look for your entire life. And then to be like, Oh, I pulled it off. Yeah, the
1: the excitement in that is
3: really beautiful and really honest.
1: Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. And it's. I also believe that somebody would come around unannounced to to someone else's house if they thought that like their one chance of having a nice wedding video might live with them. <laughs> How do you think you'd react if you found out that somebody was following you around all day with the camera on your wedding day? Because I think it would take me two views to notice. <laughs> I don't think I would have occurred to me in the moment that it was just of me. Because really? I would, because I would be the only person I would be interested in seeing in that moment. No.
3: I mean, she. I think her trajectory through it feels right, where she's like, oh, that's nice. This is exactly right. And then she's, she goes, you've stayed quite close, haven't
1: you? <laughs> Which is such a haunting line. It's very like, ooh, ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ooh, ooh.
3: Um, it's like when a British person says, like, she's a bit tricky. And you're like, that's the worst person that that person's ever met in their life um getting a little euphemistic with you've stayed quite close and then i think she plays it really beautifully and subtly where she because there's the realization in that moment is like very layered she realizes that this man is in love with her she, and she also i think seems to feel um the there's like relief that he didn't hate her which she was worried mm-hmm. that her best friend's husband hates her and then there's immediately the kind of more difficult complicated realization that he's in love with her and then i think there's a really sweet layer of empathy toward him mm. for being um she thought he was this aloof remote guy and actually he's slightly pathetic lovelorn guy not pathetic but like the, the way that love makes everyone pathetic mm. you know um and i think she plays that really nicely when she's watching him do his little yeah,
1: display. I think it's a very sweet performance when from he's, her when
3: he's doing his show that he rehearsed. Yeah, Smothered has quite a long bit about the cue cards. <laughs> in the episode six is a Christmas episode, and um, actually, there's a running thing in the episode where every time any character turns on the TV, mm-hmm. lo- a different part of Love Actually is on.
1: Was that expensive to do?
3: No, because the the very short, very short. Bits. Oh, I see. Okay, um,
1: movie magic. <laughs>
3: I think it's an it's a an imperfect storyline that is well acted and has been sort of um, retroactively condemned.
1: I agree. And I also think it's responsible for a lot of women who have husbands or boyfriends with very rude friends thinking they might be in love with her. It's a it's a more fun option. (laughs) It's more fun rather than that guy just sucks. Wouldn't you rather? I would much rather that he was that they were all secretly in love with me. And why not
3: just think that? Who's it hurting?
1: Who's it hurting? Who's it hurting? <laughs> Thank you, Kira, for this gift to us. Yeah. Also, I've been trying to make that hat and hats like it work on me for years, but my face is too round. What, what hat is it? Is it a flower is that the on little, it? No, the Baker Boy hat that she wears. Oh, when she no. brings the pie. I think she looks so sweet in it.
3: I could see you pulling that
0: off, actually. I, I think believe in yourself.
1: Okay, I'll try.
2: Number four, we're getting to the good
1: ones now. We're getting to the ones yeah. that we really do appreciate. Yeah, we got Liam Neeson and his drumming stepson. Great,
3: great. It's great. It's very sad, and also very sweet.
1: Yeah, and I, I because it becomes, I think it's very close to the top of the movie, right? And you have the wedding and the funeral, and like Richard Curtis loves these big life events that bring people together, and they both have these really strong musical components to them that make them feel really joyful, mm. like the Bye Bye Baby, Baby Goodbye. Oh, devastating. Ugh. Because it's so like, what? Like, I remember I went to um, a cremation once of my uh, neighbour. My neighbour I've known my whole life. And uh, it was, you know, it was sad. And he definitely died before any of his children expected that. And at the crematorium, the coffin went into the furnace, I guess, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, to Daddy Cool. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it is a thing that people do. Um, they 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 choose these like these strange little comedy moments that I think yeah they sort of puncture the moment and they give everyone a chuckle. But it's also it's so macabre and strange. And I think it's very much how people maybe less so in America, but on this side of the Atlantic. Process grief by by puncturing it again, giving themselves air holes to breathe through.
3: Yeah. And I think the writing is really good in that Liam Neeson eulogy scene. It really yeah. gives he's he's doing great acting. We were saying we're so sad that Liam Neeson's sort of cozy phase ended there and it was all
1: it was all like Give me back my daughter (laughs) from then on. I know it's so strange because if you think, if you look at the whole of his career, most of it was like a relationship dramas, yeah, for throughout the 80s and 90s, and and then it just ended with that.
3: I think sometimes male actors get too excited when they have the opportunity to kick down doors. I know, um, but (laughs) it's so (laughs) strange. We've lost a lot of good sweetie pies, we've lost a lot, yes, to the kicking down the door industry, yeah, um. But that, that scene, like, that that kind of stuff is what is missing, I think, in some of those other further down the list storylines is, like, the emotional background mm. of why this is devastating for Liam Neeson. Yeah. You know, because now he's been left alone, not just with, it's not even his kid, it's his stepson. Yeah. It's her kid. It's her, his dad. And also, dad, we don't
1: know what happened to that dad. He's he's not in the picture. The dad is gone. Or he's dead. So this kid's life is just fucking mired in tragedy.
3: And you kind of get the sense as well that he didn't necessarily know his stepson very well. Yeah. Like, this is sort of their first time alone together. Um, And it's it's really, I think it's really, again, like really layered for Liam Neeson to be experiencing grief and also to be experiencing parental concern. The son is experiencing grief, but he's also crucially in love for the first time in his little teen tween life.
1: And that happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love that because like there's no, there's never a time where one, just one thing is happening in your life. No, life is a flaky croissant. Yes. (laughs) Full of layer, buttery layers of grief and joy. (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, yeah, I'm. You know, I'm sad. You you don't doubt that this child is very sad. His mother has passed. Yeah, but that also he's experiencing this gargantuan emotion for the first time, and it's just
3: oh. And it's also probably not a coincidence that he found a a woman to be obsessed with after his mother passed away. Um. I just think, it, and but then also there are all these like amazing, extremely dry, very classic Richard Curtis, very classic to my mind, and it might be a stereotype British, yeah. kind of like, you know, Emma Thompson's like, oh, stop. You know, his wife's been dead like five days or something. And <laughs> she's like, oh, stop crying. You'll never get a shag if you're
1: crying all the time. So... The web of relationships within love actually a good mm. a good time to track, I think. Yes. Um so are Liam Neeson and Emma Thompson just friends, I think.
3: I think may yeah. I do respect that it doesn't explain it too hard. I yeah. think these days you get a lot of twenty years on, yeah, especially maybe in TV but also in films, you get a lot of like, Caroline, I've been your friend for <laughs> seven years. <laughs> Before saying something normal that I, there would be yeah. no need at whatsoever. You know that. I know that. Yeah, it is about seven years.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We titled this up because it, it lines up with Syl's birthday.
3: That's right. That's right. Our that's friendship nice. is as old as your dog. <laughs> uh, but like, that's not something that people who have been friends for seven years say to each other no. unless they're talking about the dog's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think Richard Curtis does a really good job of just being like, these people have intimacy. You don't need to worry about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because at first I was trying to do some like maths in my head just because I've seen it so many times. I want everything to match up of like, is she the sister of the dead wife? But that would also mean that Hugh Grant would be the sibling. Yes. Yeah, and so then, and so then he the would funeral. have been at the funeral. But no, they're just friends. I think they're and just friends.
3: Fine. And I think, uh, you know, they're close, close friends, right? She's at his house eating his cereal out of the box. Yeah. So they're close. Like there's ways you can show that they're close mm. without having to be like... God, remember what mom used to say to us when we were brother and sister as children? (laughs) But yeah, I think it's, I think this storyline is like exactly the kind of tone that love actually is going for, which is that it's, it's heartbreaking and uplifting and Christmas.
1: Yeah, it really ticks it all off. And also lots of like fun pageantry and visual cues. Yes, I
3: will say my big complaint with this storyline is Mm -hmm. how are we opening the movie with a reference to 9-11, immediately, yeah. and we're ending the movie with a boy
1: running untasered <laughs> through airport security up to a gate. Well, because they're all so busy looking at Bill Nye, he get naked, right? Because oh, that's that's the only thing that the terrorists will. <laughs> and that those kind that <laughs> kind of over. overlapping storyline is really
3: satisfying as well. Oh, yeah, these bigger storylines are where you get that kind of really. It's not just like oh look, Colin's mm-hmm. friend is also the guy. On set of the naked movie. Yeah, that's not that's satisfying. not very satisfying. But in this one, it's like a storyline that we have been seeing build mm-hmm. becomes the crescendo of another storyline, and that's very exciting. Yeah, it's yeah, very that's, satisfying. It,
1: it's perfectly done, just but it, and it's and it's so it's not too showy either, even though it's a very showy scene of this like child running through the airport. With this incredible score of like, yeah, just people are turning their heads because they might see someone's dick on screen. <laughs> it
3: feels like when you're doing a French braid. Uh, uh, someone's hair to sleep over and you're not sure it's going to turn out the yeah. whole time and then at the end you're like oh it came together hey it seemed like it was just a mess of strands but actually yeah. look at it all tied up it's a hairdo
1: oh yeah yeah very nice <laughs> um Another uh, example of all the strands all coming together is this nativity play that mm. is a combination of several schools' nativity play, which obviously coincides with the Hugh Grant storyline, which, as everyone has guessed, is higher up the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the like the, the, how huge that nativity play is, because we have this tiny line elsewhere in the movie about it being this first one where all the schools come together and that like... Him playing in the band and then his crush is singing and she's just like a Disney child character with a missing tooth.
3: <laughs> yeah, and again, a really well done little Richard Courtesy like, signature moment is that te- the slightly femme teacher yeah. who's like, I'm embarrassed to say we have all agreed to sing the song with the students. Please forgive us. And then he puts on like quite a glittery, yes. jazzy scarf. And I just feel like that is... That person is so real. Mm-hmm. He just is real.
1: Yeah, and, the, and the, that feels like an abandoned storyline. Yeah, it? that that teacher.
3: We talked about this. Yes. I would have loved to see a school a school romance between teachers from two of the schools who have been looking forward to these rehearsals because they keep coming together. Right,
1: beautiful.
3: You know, and one of them is responsible for all the lobster octopus stuff. <laughs> right, that, and that is that's another
1: like iconic thing. The 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 little octopus kid sitting yeah. between the two. <laughs> <laughs> but we're already spoiling that storyline so we might as well move forward mm-hmm. with it um, we next on the list is Hugh Grant and Martin McCutcheon see these top four storylines are really really good Yeah,
3: like they, they just are really good I think the movie gets re-watching it I felt a lot gentler towards this movie than I have in mm-hmm. previous watches because these these bigger storylines are really good and I think they get in trouble because of some of the clunkier mm-hmm. or underdeveloped other bits. Mm. But um, Hugh Grant as the Prime Minister is... It, it, it feels like it shouldn't work because Hugh yeah. Grant is so famously Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. But it it does. He's perfect. He is... Listen, <sighs> I've never seen him do a bad job at anything. No! Ever.
1: And yet and another one of those, those um, male actors who... Has re- has been despised by men, mm. by male moviegoers for years. We've just been protecting him we've been protecting in the nest. <laughs> we've just we've just... we formed a protective circle around Hugh Grant. Yeah, a protective matriarchy. We're like big elephants, <laughs> <laughs> a matriarchal society of elephants protecting our little our little baby elephants, who uh, is <laughs> Hugh Grant. Uh. And then slowly he's gotten big enough to walk over to the other male elephants and start being in Guy Ritchie movies. Mm -hmm. And now they're all like, hooray. He said recently that he's in the weirdos phase of his career. He's absolutely in the weirdos phase. He's in the new Wonka movie as the original Oompa Loompa. This is
3: what he was talking about when he said this. He was like, I do a good line in baddies, strange men, perverts. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and he does. He really does. But he, I think he twisted that himself when he did Bridget Jones's Diary. Yeah. Because it was so exciting to see him play a piece of shit when he was our good special boy for so long. Our, yes. our nervous
1: good boy. And then he was like, I know I'm incredibly good looking and I am I could be a real dick. It's, it's so fabulous. And I think maybe a large part of that goes with that. Uh, I remember listening. Do you know uh, Dolly's Love Stories interview with Emma Freud? Have you ever like, listened to it? No. no, you don't listen to podcasts and you won't listen to this. No. And that's fine. But it's... Dolly I'm interviews sorry. Emma Freud and it's it's fabulous. And the way she talks about Hugh Grant is so beautiful. And so somebody who has known someone for 30 years oh, in the sense of like... I jealous. Think, I think Dolly asked something like, you know, have you ever fancied him or whatever? Or something... Great question. Something God, charmingly indiscreet. And Emma Freud sort of just like has a full body shudder moment. And she's like, it's like, like yeah, I, I love Hugh. I adore him. But he's like... A brother and he's so useless and he's just like so everyone's a bit like oh for fuck's sake Hugh. you could tell there's an energy radiating around it that he is like a beloved member of their friend group but it's also compounded in oh for fuck's sake you and it feels like he right like Richard Curtis writes these roles for Hugh Grant that are like so clouded in we love you but for fuck's sake you you know God,
3: that's so crazy to me because I think he seems so I guess listen he wouldn't be the first person to be really uh, in command of his creative abilities and not his yeah. living faculties but um i just think i'm so impressed with him as a performer because he it would be easy to say that he does the same thing in everything but actually he's just the same level of charming and the performances are really different they are really different and yeah. he's so good uh, as the like slightly self-deprecating prime minister yeah and i I think one thing that could have become considered quite corny but actually is, has really stood up and everyone just loves it and I think always
1: will is the dance. Oh, so good. It's so good. Again, big visual moments in rom coms are necessary where there's not, it can't all just be charming dialogue and good patter. It has to be big. Dancing
3: in anything, I think. I'm always happy to see it. Yeah, happy to see it. And he really gives it his all. They pick a really fun song. And when he gets caught at the end, they deflate the entire thing in a very comedic, like very, it's a good, solid punchline to a moment that could have just ended. But, yeah but like they they give you it gives you everything you're asking for
1: it's so good every little movement every little shimmy yeah so nice and it it also isn't he's in downing street listening to jump like that's funny and
3: it's not just there for comedy value or for charm value it shows you how he's feeling in that moment mm. which is like he stood up to this guy who was hitting on the girl he likes yeah who happens to be the president (laughs) because we're living in the, you know, like very heightened world of this movie. Um, And he feels like a big man.
1: Yeah, and everyone loves him.
3: Yeah, and then he gets caught like expressing this really openly (laughs) by like a, a, you know, sort of a funny, fussy older lady. It's so, and he tries to play it off and it's impossible. It's
1: perfect. It's so perfect. Do you think that, because Richard Curtis is like a, a political person in such as, He's, you know, behind comic relief. He's clearly somebody who cares a lot about the world and making it better. And thinking about 2002, which is when he would have been making this movie, and it being this moment where, you know, Tony Blair and George Bush getting together for to invade right. Iraq. <laughs> mm. And the whole thing of the special relationship being such a parroted thing in the culture at this time. Mm. And does it feel like... Trying to make a very mild political statement into a very in a very romantic, overblown Christmas comedy movie to be
3: like maybe America doesn't need to be in charge of us all the time. Yeah,
1: sure, <laughs> sure, it could, it could, but it just made me think that if like if if that kind of th- basically whenever a movie comes out now, we're so especially if it's supposed to be frivolous, mm. we're so keen to um, validate our interest in it by saying it's politically important. Mm. Like um, Crazy Rich Asians, for example. One of my favourite rom-coms of recent years. I love that movie. I'll watch it any time when I'm hungover. But there was so much emphasis on how important it was. that it's like maybe more emphasis on how good it is. And you know? it's supposed to be quite fun, I think. It is fun. I find yeah. it very fun. I find Constance Wu so adorable in it. I think she could easily be like the next Julia Roberts. Like, um, But I think if this storyline came out today in this, you know, if the war on terror was happening now people would be in a big rush to both decode and congratulate it because I think most rom-coms are very carefully non-political now mm. because of how streamers want to kind of watch their backs a bit. I don't know. Am I overthinking it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, no, I think those those things were
3: happening at the time. And like, like you said, or maybe i said like we've talked about the movie opens with the reference 911 it's yes. very rooted in in the what was going on in 2002 um so i don't i don't think it's impossible that those things are front of mind and also no yeah i think that's possible yeah good yeah um obviously because it's a romantic comedy that those concerns are sort of secondary to the bigger thing of Seeing, seeing somebody snaking on your girl, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, I think Martine McCutcheon does such a good job. She's so charming. She's so charming. And and her stuff could be a bit. Her character could be a bit. You know, like any kind of like. Again, this is why I think Richard Curtis. It seems like someone who knows women because those kinds of like dithering characters can be a bit, a bit tiresome. Yeah, and she just seems really full and real and like. Her family is funny and and the way she, you know, like constantly swearing and stuff. I just think it's very
1: charming. And it's funny because like Richard Curtis is known so well for depicting London life, but also always a very specific form of London life, Mm. which is like the West London. My friend is an investment banker and my other friend owns a restaurant sort of London. But this is like a version of London we don't see that often, which is like a working class girl from southeast London who lives with her family in like a two up, two down in Wandsworth, you know, like it's. that's like, yeah, that's a person. Yeah, that's a person we, you and I, meet every day, and like, it's just very charmingly rendered. And I just believe her. You yeah,
3: know? yeah, and she's so gorgeous as well. She's
1: so gorgeous. Um, those little two thousand and two eyebrows and her apple cheeks. I know, really at the height of her powers, I would say. Are we even going to bother with the white
3: stuff? I think the more I think about it, the more I'm like. There's something interesting about, obviously, it's exhausting to hear that stuff and definitely did a number on my, mm-hmm. the same way Bridget Jones's weight, I think, mm-hmm. as someone who famously has an enormous ass. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, actually, I will say, while we're, the while we're here. The ass of Monica's ass. While we're here mm-hmm. on Monica's ass, when Dolly <laughs> explained why the, the the group chat was called that, she said that she wouldn't say why. For discretion reasons, which makes it sound like something terrible happened to my butt,
1: and or like you're famous for anal or something. Yeah, but
3: actually, it's it's just because of a picture where it just looks really. There's a, it's underwater,
1: and yes, you are in an infinity pool in Mexico. In, you sent us a picture when you were drunk. Mm-hmm. the 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 water has done something to the optics I, of your ass. I'm that naked it, in an
3: infinity pool, and I look like the mom from The Incredibles. <laughs>
1: And at that moment, yeah. I changed the, gr- the group picture to that picture, and I changed the name of the WhatsApp group to Monica's ass. Yep, so
3: that's why. And there
1: it has stayed for two, three years now.
3: Yeah, no. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes um, girls and occasionally gay men will say, "Are you?" When I introduce myself, will say, "Are you from Monica's ass? Is that your ass?" It is. Yeah, it is. But so that was, you know, as as someone who was. Uh, I've always been Monica's ass and, and, uh, watching all that stuff in the, in the movie about like, I'd say she's got a pretty sizable ass yeah. When her bum is relatively small, mm-hmm. she's, she's like a bit pear shaped, like a bit hippie maybe, mm-hmm. but not hippie in a bad way. That's just like, she has a lovely yeah, shape. Yeah. just her shape. Yeah. Um, I feel like so defensive <laughs> being like, yeah. it's not bad. Okay. <laughs> um, but like it was tough. It was t- that was tough to watch. But I think it's interesting. It would have been more interesting if they had cast a genuinely chubby person. Mm-hmm. Martin McCutcheon does an amazing job, and I feel like you can either have Martin McCutcheon or you can have uh, jokes about how the prime minister has a crush on a chubby girl. You yeah. know, and like what's nice is that he they end up together in the end. Like the the, the Hugh Grant never traffics in these jokes, no. and he
1: never would. And he never and would. he
3: never would. Um, he never traffics in those jokes. They're made at her expense by pretty much everyone else around her. He just thinks she's beautiful and lovely and charming just as she is, which, mm-hmm. as Richard Curtis knows, is what we want. What we want. All we want. All we want. Everything wants to be listened to. Um, every ass wants to be listened to. <laughs>
1: Put your ear to the ass and listen.
3: And I think it's really, I think that part of it is nice, actually. I think yeah. there was something lovely about... The same way watching Bridget Jones's diary. And again, she's also not big. But there's something nice about the world wanting this woman to be on the back foot because of how she looks. Yeah. And the handsomest man in the room still being and like... And most powerful. And most powerful being like, I see no problems here. <laughs> you
1: know? <laughs> lovely. Yeah,
3: kind of. It's still exhausting. It's exhausting it, to yes, hear that stuff. It,
1: it, it is exhausting. And, all, and even more puzzling when you think that he, Richard Curtis, when he was writing this movie, the character was originally called Martine because he had written in for Martine McCutcheon. So clearly he thinks she's a little fat. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I love the whole and this is why, the thing is, is that we, we've we been poking holes in these storylines all the way through in the ways in which they're successful or unsuccessful. But because, all of these storylines pretty much have something iconic within them. Yes. And for me, it's the, um, her in her neighborhood, just like, him in his her neighborhood calling at every door and interacting with people. Mm. Like, I just find it all so delightful. My favorite one is when the kids open the door and they think it's carolers. <laughs> and then he starts singing uh, Good King Wenceslas," And then his, <laughs> his chauffeur starts singing and the chauffeur's voice is incredible. It's yeah. like booming soprano.
3: And that kind of like slightly heightened reality stuff is what I love about romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. That kind of 15% higher than normal right because it's something that could happen in real life but it happens at exactly the right moment which is almost never the case in real life
1: yeah and it's like again the the marrying of the the magical, this is, this is bigger than reality moments yes. versus the very practical moments, which is like, yes, he's gone through this entire neighborhood looking for the love of his life, but now he has to share a car with a, with a paper mache octopus and they like, get to the nativity <laughs> play on time. And there's like conversations about whose car we're going to take, which is so British, you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It, it feels like that perfect marrying of like the real world and the crazy world.
3: Yeah, I agree completely. All all of the and again, when when the movie really sings is when all of those heightened elements come together and, yeah. and meet the real world. So he's knocking on a door on a street and But he's also the Prime Minister. And she yeah, and an older lady's like, Aren't you the Prime Minister? <laughs> and he's like, Okay, so now I'm doing door to door Christmas calls. Like, you know? Um and yeah, I just think everyone at the height of their powers is like really killing it.
1: Killing this storyline, I love it. It's it's one of the more joyful, yeah. And them them having a snog at the Christmas pageant and like a great smooch, a great smooch. And he
3: knows exactly what to do when they get caught. Yeah, which is very charming. Powerful.
1: Just keep smiling. Just keep smiling. Smile and, and wave.
3: wave. Yeah. Oh, I will say at the very very end of the movie when she runs up to him at the airport. Yeah, and jumps into and his- jumps onto him and fully straddles him. Which again, vindication
1: for weight jokes. I feel like people did that a lot around this time and maybe that movie started it. I think there was a lot of jumping and straddling. Maybe that happens in your youth generally, but I remember doing a lot of jumping and straddling in my late teens to mid-twenties. Yeah,
3: I think that was like a, a thing from older movies. Yes. The same way that flashing used to be a real thing in older movies. You don't flashing! see it anymore. You don't see flashing as a plot point anymore. It used to be like, we need to get past the bouncer. And then the uptight character would be yeah. like, ugh, and flash them. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Um, and Although there's that new um, rom-com show, from Dan from Accounts, that apparently... Colin from Accounts, you Colin, you're Colin right. from Accounts, Yeah. But that, um the, yeah, because it's not a flashing scene.
3: And the flashing in that one though is, is interesting because it's played as like quite a strange thing to do.
1: Yeah. Not I haven't seen it. I've just heard about it. Oh, it's yeah. great.
3: It's great. Really recommend watching Colin from Accounts.
1: We have two storylines left. And uh coming in at number two is the Christmas number one. Eee! Eee! I love this storyline so much with Bill Nighy and his Christmas number one. It's fantastic. And it's the first scene in the movie. It is literally him recording um What's it again? Oh my god, what's the song? Christmas is all around Christmas us. Christmas is all around us. It's so
3: funny. It's so funny.
1: And also feels like the most realistic plot in the entire movie because yeah. this is so something that would happen
3: in this country. The obsession with the Christmas number one is very strange. Mm-hmm um and very interesting like the the like let's all get together and send a song to number 1 for christmas yeah
1: and it, i don't think it exists anywhere else it doesn't exist in ireland it doesn't exist in the no, states certainly not in canada yeah
3: no. um i think also this storyline shows you that richard curtis did not intend for the To spawn like a million holiday themed films Mm -hmm. because this is sort of making fun of that crass commercial. Yes. Tying something to a holiday. Like we've replaced the word love (laughs) with Christmas is so funny. And Bill Nye is so good in it.
1: It's a perfect performance. And I feel like definitely put Bill Nye on the on the map in terms of he was like a character actor and a stage actor and he became a household name based on that. Depiction.
3: real breakout performance yeah Again, I, like 70 <laughs> <laughs> no he's not 70 oh, 20 years know. ago Bill Nye he's not 90 he's now not, I mean
1: I don't know he he's, was in his early 60s at the very least was he
3: well well yeah. well done for him I think yeah he's he's committing at the right level which is totally. the way he's oh it's so good
1: and this this thing of like oh, this like random, funny old guy. Like this country loves, maybe every country loves a random, funny old guy who's yeah. a bit inappropriate. And now we've, I think, learned through good experience to fear those people because they end up becoming Donald Trump.
3: <laughs> I think it's so nice to see, like the the thing of, and again, his his emotional arc is so clear. He's just like an older uh, musician at the end of his career who's had success, but not maybe...
1: In a if, long time.
3: In a while. Mm. And... um. And he's reckoning with that, and like how cornball the things he's being asked to do are now. Mm-hmm. And he has he something just snaps, <laughs> and he decides to enjoy himself instead of, instead of taking it seriously or feeling bad. And it's so beautiful, and it's just like relentlessly funny.
1: It is, it is relentlessly funny. And the more that you say that, the more it feels like the greatest life lesson of the whole movie mm. exists within the Bill Nye. Nigh- Storyline of like, yeah, just fucking relax, you know. Yeah, I've just just realized that because you know you're doing press for stuff, and I've been doing press for stuff for the last uh, you know six months or whatever. Of being like, oh yeah, what if I chose to not worry at all? Not take say whatever comes to mind and let the chips fall where they may. You will never catch me doing that, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, the real lesson is that men can do that and it's charming. Women can do that and they seem like cocky whores. Mm Cocky, ungrateful whores. I think,
3: yeah. Mm, depressing.
1: <laughs> Let's not make this depressing. It's a great storyline.
3: It's a great storyline. It's so fun. It, it Again, it ticks all of the boxes. There's some pathos. There's a lot of joy. And there's uh, it's very festive. Yeah. And it's so fun when he uh, c- commits and gets naked on the end. Like there's That's one where it's building to a point. Like if we say that the Colin Firth thing kind of ends up at this quite heightened place from sort of nowhere mm-hmm. this one is building so steadily
1: yes and yes it, it really does it builds in the, goes from like local radio to tv appearances to yeah the number one itself you know
3: and it's so clever because to have a media moment like that that's happening as a story means that um you can have it in the background right you see his video yes. like on tvs in the background or like it's playing at the It's the radio's playing at the Prime Minister's house and it's that, you know what I mean? So there are very clever little ways that they tell that story and they advance that story throughout the movie.
1: Yeah. It's fabulous. It's lovely. I mean, the most quotable parts of the movie come from his parents. Yeah. Don't buy drugs. Become a pop star and they'll give them to you for free.
3: He's just having fun. I think I, I do love, I think everyone loves when you can see that the actor's having fun. Yeah. It's, it looks fun.
1: It looks fun. The one surprise from the rewatch was how much Anton Deck cannot act at all, despite having been in front of the camera their entire lives. But it's so different to be... I, I don't envy them. anyone who has to perform themselves yeah, to play as a media themselves, entity on a film.
3: Yeah, it's hard to do. Brian Williams is really good at it. He does it on 30 Rock all the time. Brian
1: Williams. Oh yes, uh, Allison Williams' father, mm-hmm. yes. as he's known, as he's known to our generation. <laughs> yes, he's not at a thing over here, but uh, the only reason I know he is is because of that.
3: He's really good at it on Thirty Rock, um, yeah. but it's. I think it's really hard to do because you're already playing a version of yourself as a presenter, yeah. And then to do that in a in a fictional context would be very difficult. I can imagine. But Sorry, it, to it, Ant and it feels
1: like they were given one note, which is that you're quite nervous. Yeah, and they just they they doing like child performances of what nervousness looks like. Yeah
3: yeah that's true whereas actually real ant and deck are, are their whole job and what they're good at is like being kind of unflappable
1: yeah right
3: and like jo-
1: jolly exactly yeah and maybe that's part of it um and then he spends christmas with his manager, his manager who they also get some digs in about his weight
3: it's not necessary guys It's not necessary we could have the whole movie without it it would be fine
1: yeah like he's already a disgusting guy just make fun <laughs> of his disgustingness it's very, make fun of his clothes, you know? It's Yeah, make fun of some choices that he's
3: making, you know? Yeah. I just think it's... it's Again, that's the time that we lived in. Particularly yeah. over here, I think it was even more intense. Oh, huge, yeah. This um, was like
1: Trini and Susanna and like... Yes, it was Biggest very... Biggest loser and belt like... Belt it. Yeah, belt <laughs> it. Yeah. So, that leaves us at number one. Oh. Which, of course, to no one's surprise, is Emma Thompson. And... <laughs> Alan Rickman, sorry. Just Alan blanked. Rickman, yeah, yeah. and Johnny Mitchell. What's left to say
3: about the storyline that hasn't been said? Nothing. I think it's a beautiful and devastating storyline. I, I everyone's already said that it's strange that she wears devil horns to the Christmas party. And that she she's sort of like it's such oh, a Oh, the woman, the mistress. Yes. Yeah. It's such a a beautiful and understated uh look at long term marriage and what mm. external desire can do to a long term marriage. Mm. And then the woman at the center of it, like the other woman, is quite cartoonish. Yeah. She's like talking to Alan Rickman, who is, I believe, her boss. And, I mean, first she's booked a venue for the Christmas party that she describes as full of dark corners for dark deeds, which is so sinister. Dark deeds. And then she just sort of scooches forward in her chair and spreads her legs, like, which is quite intense.
1: It does feel like a it's a perfect story because it's perfectly acted. Yeah. Um and perfectly written in many places. However, it does feel like a very masculine view of infidelity, mm. which is that like women are satan and and they will do anything and behave in the most obscure and and demonic ways in order to Get you to fuck them, and they will stop at nothing, and they will spread their legs in the office. Yes, quite literally. Yeah, quite literally. When the reality of most infidelity is, is that like a guy is bored, a girl is curious, you know, or or vice versa, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah. Or two people are are flirting, and it goes a little too far. Exactly. Yeah, but they made
1: her this thing that's like impossible to resist, and the result, the character is completely insane.
3: And she's really beautiful and young, and um. And really, really into him at this like quite intense level, um, and that you're right that part of it is less successful than the stuff between Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman, or even Alan Rickman and Mr. Bean.
1: <laughs> but there's like it's so weird looking back in this movie, and like many of the people were huge at the time, like mm-hmm. Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant, and many people have become huge since, like Martin Freeman is yeah. yeah. enormous. Um, and even the kid playing drums has a huge career. Keira Knightley. Uh, Keira Knightley, exactly. She was at IGF-4, you know, obviously. Mm. But that is basically the only player, apart from maybe Carl. Carl. That office is doomed. Yeah. Um, that That person is still not recognizable to us, I think, because maybe her face is so distinctive that she was not able to get away from being... That horror from Love Actually.
3: (laughs) I do think sometimes when people play really unliked characters, it can Mm -hmm. be difficult for them to move past that. Billy Zane. Yeah. Billy Zane.
1: Like, he did such a good job with Cal Hockley that will we ever let him be anything else?
3: He did such a good job. And he could have been a good guy heartthrob. I could see it.
1: Oh, that hair?
3: Oh, my God. In like a World War II movie? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm sure he did stuff, but I think mostly for boys because I don't think women mostly would ever accept it. Yeah, we know what he did. We know what he did.
3: Yeah, Emma Thompson, and again, I think the costume designer did an amazing job with her Christmas party outfit mm. and that scene where she's going home and like taking off her, her slip. Yeah. Um.
1: And like, you know, like straightening out the bed. I, oh, she's very pretty, isn't she? And then Alan Rickman saying, Is she? Oh, so pathetic. Oh, darling, you know she is. It's so pathetic to say, is she? (sighs) I know, it's so pathetic.
3: Alan Rickman does a really good job as well of seeming like a regular man having a pathetic moment.
1: Yeah. Even buying the
3: necklace is slightly pathetic. It's so pathetic. It's not like, you know, he didn't like make a comment to her back when she was like flirting with him. He went to a jewelry store. Snuck off
1: While his wife was yeah, there Holding a coat Like it's all very Very pathetic It's pathetic And I think what's important as well Is that And maybe this is the, the dressing of that Mysterious office space Is so important Is that he's not like A CEO of a finance company It's not a sleek office environment It's quite a homespun office mm-hmm. environment I would say Yeah Like maybe it's sort of low, Lower level charity PR I'm going to say <laughs> Yeah <laughs> And um, like Yeah he's not the sleek Powerful guy He is somebody Who is trying something and actually can't stop himself from trying something.
3: Yeah, and I think it's really inter- an interesting choice and brave storytelling to leave it unresolved. Yeah, Emma Thompson gives that amazing speech. Also, I think I've never cried during that before. You and I were inconsolable. We were both crying. We
1: actually couldn't look at each other because we could feel ourselves crying <laughs> so much. And if we looked at each other, we'd cry more. It was like deep wells. Because I think it taps
3: into something that I... I didn't
1: notice
3: as much when I was a little younger, which is that things in life will break your heart and you have to carry on doing other things still. Yeah, Um, Which is like basically what the character in my novel doesn't know and Mm -hmm. then learns. Mm -hmm. But like Emma Thompson realizing, having a private devastating moment of heartbreak where she doesn't even have all the answers. That's the part where I'm like, God, this woman's so Mm -hmm. restrained. I would have been like, where is
1: it? Yeah. <laughs> like immediately. She just takes a couple of minutes to herself. i listening to both sides now. <laughs> wipes her eyes and then...
3: Pats gets the duvet. Gets the kids ready and, yeah. and watches the whole friggin' Christmas concert. Yeah. You can tell that I'm worked up because I just said friggin' like a real Canadian. <laughs> watches the whole friggin' Christmas concert. <laughs> um, sitting next to this man who maybe is fucking his... Uh, someone cute executive assistant and then quietly they finally get a moment to alone and she just asks him questions about it she like comes to him with curiosity about it which is really mature and very devastating
1: what is is it is it just a necklace or is it sex and a necklace or is it sex and a necklace and something more
3: yeah or worse is it love and a necklace
1: yeah oh I can't. I think it's like I feel like just if I talk about it anymore, I know we'll start crying again, and it will be unusable audio. (laughs) Um, But the thing about the Joni Mitchell CD that absolutely just fucks me up is that like he does love her, and he has listened. Yeah, everything in the everything in the world wants to be listened to, and she's been listened to. And the idea that someone could know you so well, love you so much, understand you completely and still betray you utterly is this weird duality that exists in all human beings who have loved people. Yeah,
3: I think that's what's what's really heartbreaking about the whole thing is that you can see that he cares for her and you I don't think this is often the case with stories about infidelity you can see that he is messing something up. Yeah, and he knows that, and he knows that, and he's compelled for various reasons. in In a way that I think is really human, mm. and it's like he knows
1: that he's he says, "I've been a fool." Yeah, I've been a fool, and it's like, and you know, what's what's the exact words? You you have been, you've made me a fool, but you've-, you've made the life I lead foolish. <gasps> <laughs>
3: I I I oh god and the fact that she's she's standing there willing to uh, talk that through with him yeah instead of instead of like I think the less mature but very common movie version of you've made the life I lead foolish so I'm throwing your things out the window yeah yeah there's so much real intense emotion and feeling and depth of care and um, commitment to family It's like, it's a really complex scene and situation that I do think gives everyone an equal amount of room to have every feeling that they have about it, which just makes it, it's really gorgeous. I think it's just like, I I personally would love to watch that whole
1: movie. Of course. And it it like... It's it's so interesting when you compare it to the other devastating story of the of the film, which is the, and I'm devastating the bummer of the film, which is the Laura Linney and Carl storyline. About how it's sad, but in a way that just makes just bums me out. It doesn't like it's a, a, a the good deep sweet pain mm-hmm. of watching that Emma Thompson storyline.
3: And is, again, part of that is not having enough information. We yeah. don't know where Laura Linney and her brothers family are
1: yeah or
3: why they're american and in the uk he he lives there yeah and and we don't know what anything about carl except that he's attractive and she's liked him for a long time whereas in this one in this storyline there's a lot that's communicated between the between these actors just by virtue of like they have kids together and and you're right. His gift is a really good gift. That's such a heartbreaking thing. Yeah. He's not a monster. He's making a really bad choice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And also, I think great relationships like that is like, like you know, to go back to When Harry Met Sally, we we took the whole running time of that movie, the Carrie Fisher and um, I can't remember the name of the guy she ends up with. We don't see that much of them alone together, but we there's is enough it there. Jez? For, Jez? I think it's Jazz. My God. Um, but there's enough there that we can imagine what their home life is like when we're we can't see it. And with Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman, I just always get this feeling whenever I watch that I'm like, oh, you know, they're they've got kind of young kids for how old they are. Yeah. So you get a feeling that they kind of met slightly later in life mm. and that they had both held on for the right thing and that they both really loved having this home together. You yeah. Know?
3: And I think in the scenes that they're in that aren't directly related to their storylines, when they pop up in other people's yeah. storylines, there's a lot of really good character building happening. Yes. Like you you see Emma Thompson being like stalwart, but also yes. funny and really smart. And you get the sense that she really loves her people. And you see Alan Rickman being largely quite a good boss and friend.
1: Yeah. Um, and they're they're both depended on by other characters as being empathetic and wise and they're it helps that
3: they're so warm and witty as performers are yeah. so charismatic, so you're just like, "Yes, kiss, yes. they're absolutely <laughs> um but i yeah, I just think they're it's really well written and really complex and really an example of like what this genre can do at at the peak of its powers
1: agreed, and that's love actually ranked. <laughs> Do we have any closing thoughts? We've been here for so long. I
3: know. We just both almost made brought ourselves to tears <laughs> thinking
1: about Emma Thompson listening to Jerry John. Oh my God, it's half 12. Oh God. I know. Yeah. So, Monica Heisey, you are the author of Really Good Actually, the unmissable smash hit that's everywhere right now. It's like you walk out of your house and someone's going to try and sell you a copy of this book. It's <laughs> fantastic. Um, and I've read it three times. That's so nice of you. I'm going to cry again. I mean, the first time, just because you're my friend. And the second time, because he was like, you know what? I'm going to just grab this off the shelf while I'm waiting around for something else. And then, oh, I've read the whole thing. And the third time, because it's an audiobook. And it's like one of these books that like, even though ostensibly the storyline is depressing, (laughs) the the way the sentence just moved together as one makes it a really comforting reread. And lots of things get compared to Heartburn. And like Heartburn does the same thing for me where it's like it's a de- it's kind of a short and small depressing story. Mm. But there's something about the lyricism and the joke writing that just makes it this thing that you go back to again and again. And I that I really think that your book exists next to it for that reason. Oh, my God. And you also have a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I do. If
3: you're listening, I would really love you to watch the TV show. Oh yeah. My God. Um, it's called Smothered. It's on Sky and now TV. And it's it's a romantic comedy. And um, there are lots of ways. I'm sure that I feel like sitting here talking about someone else's romantic comedy and all the things I think could be better. Having just released my own, I'm like, I. There are so many ways that it could be better. But we really did try very hard.
1: I think we actually changed the bio on Monica's ass to being, we tried really got hard and the show is good. <laughs> <laughs> because you needed quite a lot of soothing around this time. Yes, I tried really
3: hard, and <laughs> and the show is the good. show is good. <laughs> Thank you, Malika Heise. Thank you.
2: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.